Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 94 of Drinks with Tony. This week, my guest is Arthur Narcessian, and if you'd like to join the online event happening for the release of his new book, Arthur is having a discussion with Bob Odenkirk, the star of Better Call Saul and Mr. Show, as part of his release party for the five books of Robert Moses. Go to akashicbooks.com and check and click on the link for events to sign up for the July 16th event at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Also, I'm teaching an online screenwriting workshop through Writing Workshops Dallas starting on August 3rd. The workshop is limited to 10 students. Go to writingworkshops.com and click on Upcoming Classes. All right, now the main event. Hi, this is Arthur Nersessian, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Arthur Nersessian. He is the author of The Five Books of Robert Moses, coming out on July in July 2020. His previous novels include Suicide Casanova, Manhattan Loverboy, and The Fuck Up. Arthur, how are you doing? Good, great. How are you, as best as you can hope during a pandemic. I know, seriously. I, it, I, it, the thing, you know, we're in a pandemic, but also how do we mentally cope? That's the thing that's freaking me out on this whole thing. You know, it's interesting because, I mean, as a writer, you know, writing is a pretty solitary uh, act. So, you, you know, I really, the, 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 the ability to socialize is a really important counterweight. Otherwise, you're just, it's total isolation. And it, and it does affect your writing. I mean, I'm just talking about it from like a personal, you know, a professional point. They really, like, usually I'll, I'll spend hours working on my thing. And then I go out and hang, you know, see friends and socialize. And now that's gone. So it's like, um, it's not good. <laughs> it's, I mean, I'm sure there's other reasons, but that's one reason. So, you know, it's, it's not good. So, yeah. Yeah, my non-writer friends are going, oh, this must be perfect for you. So you could just focus on your work. I'm like, you have no idea. I have to be out in the world. I have to be out at cafes. I have to have people irritate me, vaguely irritate me. And then I can get back into the groove. And the the (laughs) stimulus is gone. (laughs) It's kind of like, you know, having a great steak but no salt. And now we only have salt. You know, it's something. Right. you know, you need you need it to balance out other things. So it's anyway, yeah, brutal, just brutal. Yeah, um, I, and I, <laughs> I, I love. I'm so I I'm on the, I I'm on the first uh, book still of the five books of Moses. I'm all I got like three pages left till I bet till I'm into the next chapter. I, I was told I have to hold it up, but I figured so. You, you know, I, I say so. You're about you're about I think about the, an inch or maybe three quarters of an inch, half an inch into it. Let, let me just tell you, thanks for making me feel like less than half a man. <laughs> I always say the quickest way for a writer to lose his friends is asking if they read your book. I never ask anybody if they read my book. I never will, by the way. Yeah. You, you will find yourself in a very lonely place if you do that. <laughs> oh, I never do either. I never ask, have you read, have you read the book? Have you seen the film? I don't. It, it's, and then people, uh, then people come up to me. And they're like, "I'm so sorry, I haven't seen the film yet." And I'm going, "It doesn't matter. I don't. I don't even need to know." <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, yeah. oh, it's true. Sad and true. Oh man. Yeah. It's after putting all that work in, you're just like, I, I don't need to know. That part of my life's done. <laughs> well, I, you know, for me, 
especially because I, you know, I, I don't see the advances that uh, would, you know, make this into a uh, a solvent project. But so the greatest reward is just that I don't have to write it anymore. <laughs> like it's like being let out of a kind of strange prison every time I finish a book. I mean, you spend years of your life there. You know, you funnel everything through this alternate world that you're working on, and I mean, everything gets strained through that. And the characters in it, and it's by the time you're years of that i mean in this case over 20 years of this thing you're like i i'm just so glad to have it behind me you know so that's the big that's the, one of the great rewards of finishing a book <laughs> well and and, and a, over a 1500 page book um how how uh, akashic books is putting it out so that the, they're essentially saying hey go go with this this is like william Fullman type stuff coming at you <laughs> uh, yeah 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 i mean it's um yeah i and it's it's great that akashic's doing that because the, the publishers really got to be behind you if they're going to put out a, um well that's the thing it's it's interesting i mean i i i see this actually as five books uh, you know it's five books that are kind of brought into one and it's one continuous story so in that by that definition it is one book but um but each book was really intended to be a standalone each book was you know in fact when i sat down with my publisher the idea was that each book would be more or less 300 pages and uh, even you know i mean the first book the the swing butter of staten island book is i think under it's like 270 pages it's not even so so i mean the point is like even though it's kind of cool to feel like i've written this epic i feel like i've written five moderate to small novels you know and but they all but they all have a, you know, they go from A to Z in story. So in that regard, I guess they are one novel, but I still, for me, the, the dramatic arcs and, and the ability to, I mean, if you could, if you could pick up any one book and read it, you should be able to have some idea of the whole story and have a, a pretty good sense of beginning, middle and end. So in that regard, I see it still as five books. It, when you were in early talks with your publisher on this, was there a consideration, was there an idea of like, let's put these out, at, uh, well, a couple of them are already published and reworked. Well, I want to talk to you about that in a second, but yeah, um, yeah. Was, was there a conversation of, are we going to put out three different, three, three more novels or do we have, what, what is, or do we have a cohesive, um, you know, who was the one that brought up, let's put it all together? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, this, the story of the publication of this book uh, could easily be a book. It's so insane. And, you know, for years, you know, I was telling someone that, you know, I, I looked at this as kind of my B project. I would do other, these other novels and then between waiting for editors to do their passes and so on. And, you know, as breaks, I would work on this book. And for the longest time, um, I reached kind of a early on. I reached a point and kind of came to this huge impasse. And um, and the point is that I really reached this uh, this state of mind where I thought um, I don't think I'm ever going to get this book published. This is just going to be my own private, bizarre. You know, I refer to it as my white whale. I really, I, I in fact, my I, I had a a pretty good agent back then, and he. I wheeled it into his office in a box, you know, a huge uh, little hand truck thing. And he looked at it and he just, you know, I, I cannot sell this. I have no clue how I would pitch this. You know, I mean, we went through some back and forth and he finally just threw his hands up and said, I'm sorry. 
and that basically ended our relationship. And, um, and it was at that point that I thought, you know, I mean, for a while I tried to let it go, um, but it just kept, I'd been with, I'd been, I'd worked on it over a, a decade at that point, And um, it just got under my skin. It was really like, it was like heroin. I just couldn't, I couldn't quit it, you know? I, and, uh, and, and so, but the point is I really reached this point for a while where I just thought, um, this is going to be my pet book that I'm going to just put my nervous energy into and it'll probably never see the light of day. So, so yeah. And here we are. Well, what was, what was it like getting the gal getting the galley and just seeing it bound for the first time after decades of work? <laughs> well, I'll tell you the, the thing is like, I never saw, I never got a galley. I saw one galley of it actually very quickly, but um, the galley was more expensive, I think than the final product. So I think they just made like a few, because I actually, I have a collection of galleys. So I really wanted the galley of my book. Um, and uh, I, I still don't have one. And um, But I remember seeing it and it was the first, and I remember like holding the thing up and, and I, you know, <laughs> and it was in the publishing office and there were all these, you know, there were editors and, you know, other people there. And they, I think they were kind of looking at me to see how I would respond. And I just held it up and I thought, God, I wish I could have the last 25 years of my life back. <laughs> Instead of Yahoo, I was like, oh God, this is, this is what I've wasted this long, this much. I mean, I don't feel that way. I mean, I'm very proud of it, but it was like, you know, I was a young man. I was in my early thirties, I think when I started this thing and um, I had no fucking idea. Is it okay to curse? Yeah. Okay. I had no fucking idea that it was going to be, it was going to be basically what is it, 26 years in the making, 27 years? I know if I knew that, I, I don't think I would have done it, you know. Isn't it crazy? I think that's, I think that's the case for a lot of, uh, I, I find myself when, um, when I, when I go into a project, I have the, I have the little, uh, what do you call it, the, the honeymoon part where right, you're, yeah, oh, yeah. this is, this is just going to be so great. This should be so great. And then when you're in and you're committed and then you just, and, you, and you're in the, you're in the war of it. And it, yeah, just, yeah, yeah. it always uh, seems to take more of a toll than it ever uh, could have imagined. Uh, uh, I always say about being a writer, you know, I, um, I don't regret being a writer, but I would never do this again. <laughs> it's like, like kind of like some relationships I've been in. Like, you know, you know, I, I can't say I, it wasn't fun, but I sure as shit am not going to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. That's how I feel about being a writer. You know, it's like, all right, you know, it's too bad we don't get two lives, you know, you gotta get a fuck around life to do something like be a writer, and then you get a, a life where you can, you know, I don't know, do what you're supposed to do, and it's much easier, and this has been a challenge from day one. Right, yeah. the, the, we could get like a, para, we could get the parallel life, where we just get a nine to five job, we save up enough money to buy a house, we get in a little too much debt, we get promotion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what, you know, I recently saw the last temptation of Christ, you know, the Scorsese film, the feel good movie, actually, the feel good movie. But, but I thought it was like really hilarious because his fantasy, and this is like, it says a lot, like, you know, these larger than life figures, their fantasy is just to have a nine to five job, have kids, be left alone, you know, have a beer, watch TV. You know, they don't want to be the martyr for God. They don't want to be a, whatever, a big writer, a writer of any kind, or maybe a they, they just would like to have a calm, soothing life. That's, you know, and, it's like this stuff is, this is not easy. 
<laughs> you know, going 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 off the, the 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 main road in life is just really is is hard. It's, stay on the trodden road, everybody. You know, that's my advice to you. So. And, but at the same time, there's there's um I, I'm starting to realize the struggle is what because I used to try to figure out how am I ever going to be happy? How am I ever going to be happy? And I'm like, no, I'm asking the wrong question. How how can I be content in this struggle? And that and I shifted that, and I'm like, because I'm let's do the struggle, and then you know it's that's that's where I went. I don't know if that that's a good. Um, I mean, you have to at, at, at some point. When I was in my late teens, early twenties, I was around a variety of elderly people. My father, among others, who was dying of ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So I had this perspective of life really from your deathbed, and I thought, you know, I was I was about eighteen, and I just thought, what's my life going to look like? You know, I mean, this was in the mid seventies. I thought, like by twenty twenty, as I and I'm, I'm I've just reached the age my father was when he died. Wow. And I thought. By the time I am, am see, you know, by the time I start seeing the grave, what do I want my life to look like in retrospect? You know, what do I want to feel like I've done? That's my, my little bucket list, if you will, that was important to the, in the life. And you know, being a writer was one of those things. And but but that perspective, it was a very grim time in my life, and um, it really wasn't a good way to look at it. You, you know, it was a little too fatalistic, I think, and I kind of been paying the price. So. Anyway, <laughs> do you do you think that was do you think that was kind of a uh, veered you toward the writer's life because you realize that death that when we're when when we are faced with death, you know, or what what's what what do we want on the what do we want on the hindsight of our memories? Well, I mean, just this this whole, whole this whole life and death structure thing is so bizarre. It's like you know, you're here for a few years, you do you get some things done a lot less than you thought you would. Um, I mean, in fact, I think every aspect of your life is is going to prove kind of diminished when you compare it to your expectations, and um, and you're out of here in a blink. I mean, you know, it's uh, these these other people that I saw, my my grandfather and this uh, relative I took care of who had Alzheimer's. You know, they all said it like, where did it all go? It passed a moment ago. I mean, I was 20. I was your age a moment ago, and they and you know, these, some of these people. My grandfather was born in 18. 98 just a few blocks from here wow and i thought yeah on 10th and the first avenue you know and, and the point is um you know so i had this kind of acute awareness that we're not here as long as we think we are we we're gonna get a lot less done than we think we can and and trying to work out what this whole life is about and trying to capture some sense some picture of it and, um you know the lessons and so on that that's kind of what I came out with, you know. Instead of like look for a good job, a, a loving woman, you know, etc. Things that made a lot more sense, really. I know. <laughs> things, I, things I could have been doing. Um, I, I I like the loving job and a good woman. There um, you go. <laughs> the, uh, good yeah. job, loving woman. Yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> so, so, um, hey, listen, a good partner is a uh, a job. So you know, there it is. Right. There's, there's a mingling there. Okay. Yeah, that's not nine to five. That's twenty four seven. That's true. That's very true. So you, I mean, as far as New York is concerned, your relationship to the city of New York is runs really deep. Well, I, I was born and raised here, as were both my parents. And um, my mother's father 
was born and raised here and his father and I think his father came here. So my great great grandfather came here, I believe, in like the eighteen seventies. And all of them were Lower East Side Irish. And uh, so, yeah, and I, I have this constant, I mean, walking around the city, I've been here since 1958, I've been here for 61 years. I've seen the city transform three or four times into very different places from 1958. And, um, you know, and I even try to imagine what it must have been like. I mean, I walked through the streets, uh, like my, my grandfather was raised on the corner of, uh, I guess, was it um, like Avenue be in like Ninth Street, and you know, so I'll go by there and try to imagine what his world must have been like in the, um, you know, in the arts in a hundred and something years ago when he was being raised. And you know, he thought like he um, was eighteen or nineteen years old during the nineteen eighteen pandemic. Wow! And I, I got to I got to know him in the seventies, and I, you know, I got to hang out with him. I, I was the beginning of my life in the tail end of his. You know, I also found out that my granddad, my father, my father's aunt was a nurse during the, the uh, 1918 pandemic, and she ended up dying at a hospital in uh, Philly because she would not, you know, she worked basically, she died with her boots on, as they say, you know, and it's yeah. like, um, it's, it's one of those things you never figure you're gonna ever see in your lifetime, but you know, I guess if you have a, if you have a crappy leader, you'll see everything. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> Let's not go to, if we go down that road, that's the end of, you know, we'll just never, you know, it's a, it's a bottomless pit. Well, if we go down that road, I'll just, I'll, all you'll hear is me weeping in fetal position. Both of us. You know, which might, make, which might make for a good show. I don't know, because I haven't done it yet. <laughs> it's, it could be a porn video, like a fetish tape or something. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, huh, that might, that might be my new side hustle. <laughs> like, There's a market for everything nowadays. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why you made me blush. You told me you made me blush. All right. Um. So, so what's, what's it been like? I mean, because like when I'm, when I'm reading the first book of the five books of Moses, of uh, Robert Moses, um, you know, I, I feel like even though that's set in a, in a, in a completely different geographical location, but it's still a New York of sorts, I'm still very guided on, um, it, it's like the, your authority on just having New York as a character I feel very well taken care of and I, it's, and it's, it feels almost, you know, I'm kind of trying to track it as a travel, a travel journal too. I'm like, Oh wait, okay. Where's he at now? Now he's in Staten Island. And oh, you know, I little my little experience in New York. I'm trying to like grasp it, grasp onto it through you. It's a lot of fun. Well, we, I, I don't know if you, if you noticed that we have this, the, the map, I don't know if you can see it of, of the alternate New York, which it deliberately kind of looks like a fetus, but uh, you know, but this is, I guess, the uh, East Village is over here somewhere. But, you know, here's the thing. It's like if you've lived here all these years, especially like from the 80s when the East Village was a very, was really kind of this wonderful creative community in many ways. And um, it, it had kind of wacky people and rents were still somewhat affordable. And you had these interesting institutions, bookstores, theaters, you know, musical venues that all gone. And you look back and you thought, what happened to that world and, and those people? And in effect, it's like, um, I mean, th this novel is basically the idea of kind of taking all those people and kind of putting them over here and, and they're kind of stuck there, you know, and it's kind of, it still has that old New York charm and grit to it, but it's like, 
they've basically been kind of taken out of the city. And, and that's kind of how it feels economically. I mean, all the old characters that made this neighborhood what it was and made it colorful and, and terrific to be in are, are more or less gone, you know, and it's like, uh, and you have to wonder where they are. I mean, many of them have passed on, but, um, but some of this is kind of an homage to that, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I get it. I mean, what you know, uh, my because my family's San Franciscan, so I remember being a kid in the '80s, going to San Francisco to my uh, grandparents' place, who were utterly disgusted. And it was in a neighborhood called Noe Valley, and they were, and it was a working class neighborhood at the time. They were so disgusted at the yuppies moving in, the yuppies taking over, and <laughs> and, and there's all these cycles in San Francisco of disgust of who's coming in next, who's coming in next. Where I just started, I started to just put a deaf ear to it. I'm like, I don't care if there's a tech boom. It doesn't matter. This is a constant here. This is the one constant. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. always going to be mad at who's moving in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's the thing. You don't want to be some old fart that's kind of moaning all the time, you know. Um, because, I mean, I, I actually love the young kids that come in. They, they have this innocence and this freshness to them. But, you know, they're no different than we were. And, you know, I, I, it's... You don't want to vilify anybody. Um, you know, I always make fun of what I refer to as the, the Millies, the young people, but I, I really find them endearing and, and actually incredibly hopeful, like this whole yeah. thing that's happening now with protests. I mean, I, I do remember in the 80s, you know, the, 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 um, the walls, there was a lot of anti-Reagan stuff around and about, and, and a lot of the culture, the street culture, and even art and music, Kind of embrace that and i feel like that's kind of missing here but I, you know i really admire th these guys coming out and protesting daily and uh you know their hearts are in the right place and you know um you still wonder how the hell we got with trump but then in the 80s we got with reagan which in my mind was was no better i mean it was just uh so you know anyway there are parallels there and i i think I, you know, again, without wanting to point any fingers, I think if there is a finger to point, it's kind of the uh, the developers and just the fact that there's no um, the real estate laws are such that places that were institutions that really opened the gates to the neighborhood in many ways to, and, you know, made it kind of livable, were all priced out eventually. And, you know, there should have been some kind of rent stabilization laws for a lot of those places. And, but anyway, you know, I know San Francisco is kind of, in, in a painful spot in the same area, it's a lot easier to evict uh, the old timers and stuff like that. And it's it really wipes away the culture. It becomes kind of this like a, a huge a kind of a Stalinist purge of, of the immediate culture for just the higher the highest bidder, which are invariably like corporate chains and franchises. Franchises they have the deepest pockets. So, and those places, by the way, would not come anywhere near New York City back in the day. They didn't yeah. see a uh, you know forget it. So anyway, yeah, it's like, I, you know, I was uh, bummed out that, uh, you know, a lot of the music venues are shutting down in San Francisco oh, and, it, you know, and it was like hurting my heart because I had so much history there myself. And then I'm like, wait a second, when's the last time I saw a show there? You know, <laughs> and then I'm like, wait, part of this is my fault because I'm not paying yeah, yeah, yeah. it anymore. And maybe, and maybe there's just not enough kids going in there because they don't give a shit about, you know, old people music. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, that's a good point. I mean, there's, you have to be, you have to kind of grow and feed the, you know, yes. I felt the same way, by the way. I felt like I, I should have been going there more regularly. You know, in the St. Mark's Bookshop, which to me was kind of a big local literary institution, when they started having trouble, 
I, I, I was making it a point of kind of hanging out there. I was going there like every day just to, because I felt like, you know, even just being visible was kind of showing some kind of support. But I mean, that place really broke my heart when they went under, it almost made it to 40 years. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, uh, back to the, uh, the five books of Robert Moses. Uh, is Two of those books have been previously published. Is that correct? The yeah, the uh, the swing voter of Staten Island and the sacrificial circumcision of the Bronx. If you, and and the thing is, like, those two books are pretty much the same as they were, but there were some updates and, and modifications. And the two things that we kind of encountered were we weren't really getting we weren't getting the attention that, that my other books had been getting. So uh, we kind of pulled it into dry dock, me and, and my publisher, and said, "Listen, why don't we?" Why don't I finish the whole thing, and then we can kind of lop it into the five into five books? I mean, initially I was hoping we could do the finish the whole thing, and it would have been great to publish each book separately, maybe as a box set, because um, I thought I kind of. In any case, the point is that um, as I by, by doing that, it really kind of untied my hands. I was able to do a lot more back and forth uh, editing and and rewrites and kind of pre-establish things and kind of allow things to grow it's it's really hard if you write a, you know as you're writing each page each page is immediately getting published uh i think in the 19th century that with these installation novels they would do that because you could sell them in magazines and then publish them as books but you know i wasn't getting any i was barely getting a paycheck let alone a double paycheck so it uh, it, it made for a much tighter book you know i really did try to keep it i, I mean i really don't have a lot of um how could i put it I don't regard myself as a verbose writer. I don't, I, if I can do something in a, uh, a hundred words or a couple hundred words rather than a thousand, I mean, I really try to, you know, I prefer minimal, you know, to, to maximal. So it's, it's not deliberately a big book. I mean, I actually think it's a huge story. It's actually a huge story that um, is told pretty concisely once you kind of get the full sweep of the story. So... And it, and and uh, the Swing Voter of Staten Island is uh, is one of the books I hadn't read of yours, and um and so I'm reading this, and I and I'm like, how did I let this pass me by? Because I, I was like, oh, let me just let me just look at the first ten pages, and no, I couldn't just look at the first ten pages. I had to keep going because I was totally on Uli's journey, and oh, that's yeah, and, and and I was just like, wow, and and it just and for some reason, it's just it makes sense to have it in a volume like this where I can't, it, where it, it gets in my face and goes, no, no, you have to read this. <laughs> I'm just like, all right then, I'm in. I, I, ho I hope so, because I mean, you know, and again, I might be, I, I'm certainly a partial, you know, I'm, I'm certainly partial in my opinion because I wrote the thing, but I actually think the book gets better, steadily better as it progresses. And I mean, and by better, I mean more suspenseful, just more intriguing, the, the ideas kind of come more to life and. Uh, it has a nice, huge finale at the end, which I, I don't want to ruin. But, but basically, the shark jumps on the boat and, uh, and eats Robert Shaw. So. Oh, <laughs> now I don't even need to read it. Because who there needs the go. journey? Who needs the journey when you know the end? So, spoiler alert, but yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not going to. It's Actually, I'm kind of worried because, I mean, it has an end that I don't. I think some people are going to find kind of surprising for a variety of reasons. I mean, by the time you get to book five, you'll see what they are, but I'm trying not to spoil my own book. So, 
Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I'm trying to get through. You know, I'm also I also have my account on Goodreads. You know, Goodreads.com. So yeah, I have yeah, yeah. my currently reading. You know, your book, uh, and I'm like, and I just I want to get to the end of it so I can put the rating up there. You know, oh, and, and um, and it's just like, oh my god, I, how much? How much more? T- I mean, I because yeah, what the problem with me is I'm juggling books because I'm interviewing other authors, yeah, and, then oh, gotta, yeah. and then I got to come back to it and go, okay, where do we go now? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. It's, it can be overwhelming. Yeah, sure. No, it's great. It's absolutely fantastic. I got to tell you, when, like when, when, I, when, I was, when I was at a cafe and I was reading your book, um, when I could be in a cafe area, um, I looked really smart. You really what? I looked really smart. Oh, you looked really smart. <laughs> I, I felt really, and, and, I, and I still walk around with your book. I'm like, you know what? It doesn't go on my backpack. This goes in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. every time i do something like that i, I always like hold the book upside down so it's a dead giveaway that i'm just looking that you know i'm just i'm just acting it out about you know doing the job so <laughs> oh funny funny yeah if you have like a big book and then underneath and then underneath it it's a playboy magazine right <laughs> there you go evil days oh my god yeah. oh my god uh. <laughs> um oh i Oh, um, so I used to run this uh, website called cherrybleeds.com. Right, like I remember, years. yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> and and, 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 and um, there's a pull quote in there from Cherry Bleeds in the book. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a great like, quote. Yeah, I'm just kind of browsing and I'm all, no way. <laughs> That's a great quote. Yeah, I mean, that you, you, I mean, thank you so much for such a wonderful quote. Really. And, that, and that was on the book Suicide Casanova. I remember getting that book from Akashic. That was on the Kashik, right? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. on the Kashik. And yeah. um, and it came in a video case. Right. Remember right, right. <laughs> the old VHS cases, yeah. Which was a great idea, but terrible for reading. I had to, I had to end up just ripping it out with a razor blade so I can read it. A variety of people said that. I mean, it was kind of a gimmick, you know, admittedly. And yeah, they, everyone said that that uh, it was murder. It, 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 the concept was wonderful. The actual, you know, practice or execution, the usability just was a failure. Yeah. Kind of like a, a Frank Lloyd Wright building or something like that. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. There you go. It was, good. Gonna... it was good fun. I just felt so sad defacing it. But I'm like, no, I got to read this. And I, and I got, I can't keep cutting my hands on the plastic. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I totally advise people get the paperback version of it. But it is a nice, it really does make a nice conversation piece. And it looks good on the shelf. Yeah, but uh, that that's where it should kind of stay. So, yeah, yeah. I'm and, how, and I'm sure that was a short run edition, right? I mean, that probably was a bit expensive to put together. Yeah, I, I guess so. I mean, it sold out, thank God. You know, and I mean, we it uh, we didn't do a reprint. I mean, the original printing of that was, you know, it didn't go into a second printing, and then we we brought it out in paperback. So yeah, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. And then I gotta tell you. You have a very sexy blurb on uh, Five Books of Robert Moses from a fella called Bob Odenkirk. Oh, yeah, Bob. Yeah. How did, how, how did you connect? Because you, you're doing the event with him in July, too. I am. I am. Well, he, he optioned The Fuck Up, my first novel. And okay. he actually did a great screenplay of it. And um, he, uh, he actually flew me out to L.A. and did this huge roundtable reading with like a, an all-star cast and it was just wonderful, and uh, at the time, he really didn't have the the clout that he does now. Uh, to I mean, he was trying to raise I think five mil to you know produce it. And I think he came to about 
after that point. And he just couldn't. Uh, so, and, and then, as is the case with many actors, I mean, life suddenly got very busy, and uh, you know, he kind of had to let it go. But uh, he, he did. He I saw about a half a dozen different scripts of that book, and his was by far the sharpest. I mean, it was just very, uh, you know, perceptive. He really caught the feel of it. And he um, he didn't he didn't over he didn't pulverize the story as people tend to do in the case of you know adaptation and something like that. So it was it was a good it was a good job. It's the shame it never got made. So. Yeah, it's um. So the scripts out there. If it doesn't get made, it, I, I would lo- I'd like I would love to read the script. That that would be so exciting just to see that. That'd be great. I'd be. I'll I'll, I'll tell them that. I'll, I'll I'll say that you know suggested. I don't know. I don't think they really want to publish unproduced scripts. See, I think he might even still be looking for a producer for it to just you know sell it as a script. It should get made. I mean, again, it was it was really well done. I thought it really captured the spirit of the book. And so many films you see that are adapted from books do not do that. They really just, they, you know, you're like, what the fuck was that? And his, uh, you know, as the writer of the book, I, I looked at that and I said, yeah, that's, that would be the, that would be the film that I would have made if I could make a film of it. So. And, and what, a, and what, a, um, I, I'm sure him hearing that was just made his heart glow because it, it, it's really hard to get a writer, you know, the, a writer of a novel totally on board with the screenplay. Um, and most because it most of the time it doesn't work. <laughs> so. Well, well, you know, I'll tell you, I give him credit because what he did and what um, is he actually sent me drafts of it and said, "What do you think of this?" You know, and and you know, I've had I've had um, several. I've had three projects that were uh, that were multiply options and one that was actually made into a movie, and and he cared. He just he listened. You know, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, usually they they'll buy the property and that you sign the contract and that's the end of it. And he really did uh, the follow up and, you know, ask me background questions and stuff like that. And he really did it. He really did the work, you know? And so, I mean, that, that was part of perhaps the reason why, you know, he really did listen to the author, you know? So. I, yeah. And I, and I think, um, you know, <clears throat> like Hollywood gets a bad, like there'll be a, like Hollywood, like, you know, gets a bad rap in general. But there are people out there that are like Bob Odenkirk who are really passionate about the story and they're really trying to dig in. And it's, it's just so refreshing when you find out who they are. And, and, and then they, you know, then someone like him blows up and becomes Better Call Saul. And you just sit there and yeah, you yeah. right on because that year, it, you just sit back and go, it's amazing because oh, yeah. you've put in all the time and you're, and you're there for the craft, you know. Oh yeah, well, and also, I mean, Better Call Saul is such a great series, and he he is so much that character. I mean, he has range, so it's really good. But uh, you know, uh, I'm just glad that 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 vehicle kind of. I mean, you know, I, I liked Breaking Bad a lot, but his character in Breaking Bad is the only one that I really that really um, I found charming. You know, I really enjoyed whatever he came on the screen. He just like he couldn't. You know, you, you couldn't stop laughing, and it was just hypnotizing. I, I mean, by my by my measure, he stole every scene he was in. But of course, you know, maybe I'm partial. So you know, yeah, I just did a great job. Yeah, the, um, uh, our star from uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, his name's Sasha Feldman. He's on this season's this last season of Better Call Saul. He plays uh, uh-huh. he plays one of the uh, one of the dumb druggy kids that's trying to get the drugs out of the. Um, you know, they, they go, they're like, they're the one, oh, they're called the 50%. They're like half off. 
and they go do that huge drug binge. That's uh, Sasha Feldman. <laughs> and it, it was just, it, it, it was so great to, you know, see Sasha on there because I consider him like family of sorts because he kind oh, of played, cool. played me in a movie. So that's great. That's, yeah. well, I'll check it. I, I don't think I've even seen that, the, that latest season. So maybe hey. I have. I don't know. <laughs> I get it on Netflix. So, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. The latest season is really good. It's, okay, I, yeah. it keeps getting better and better. It blows oh, my mind. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. It really is terrific. So, but it's, and, it, and, and you know, you've got the book coming out and you don't know there's a pandemic coming up because you were, were probably getting ready to do the author tour, right? Yeah, 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 very much. Yeah. yeah it, what it's, and after working on this for decades, I mean, what was the feeling when you're just going, wait a second, we're not touring? Well, well I have to confess, I mean, on one hand, you know, you know, this, again, I look at it as five books. So for me, this is my 14th book even though some would call it my 10th. But the point is that with each book I've done, I've done some, you know, I've done some healthy amount of touring. I usually do somewhere between 15 to 30 readings, depending on, I don't know, whatever it is. And I've never liked readings. I got I have to confess, I, I still have like a, this performance anxiety. I just, you know, the, one of the reasons I became a, a writer instead of a, an actor is because I don't like having to, you know, I don't, like having to do that. I mean, it just makes me nervous as hell. So on one hand, I was greatly relieved. On the other hand, um, I was kind of ter terrified of, you know, the 9-11 syndrome because nothing sold for those months after that. And, you know, you put 25 years of work into something and the idea that this is going to just wind up going down, you know, basically the whole, this whole season is kind of lost because of it is, is absolutely terrifying, but it seems to be selling, you know, fairly well under the circumstances. So, I know. Well, with the circumstances, I I'm fine. I'm I'm hope I I don't I'm usually a pessimist, but in this case, I'm an optimist when it comes to the reading public. I think people are buying more books and finding that reading is like reading. Get you can't just watch Netflix all day. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, some people can, but at some point, you're just like, wait a second. Oh yeah, I forgot those book things. And, you know, so it, it, it may be doing a favor to the to the book industry. I don't know. They say book sales are up, you know, but, you know, again, I, I, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, hoping you're right. I, I, I pray that you're right. I mean, it's, um, but it's like kind of what we were talking about before, I think, where we were just saying, if you're, as a writer, if you're locked in all day, you don't really want to spend the evening writing. I mean, if people are locked in, I don't know if. I, I don't know. I, I'm afraid the nervous tension of the times might be eroding their concentration, but I mean, hopefully not, you know, so hopefully not. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, if I don't write every day and if I don't read for an hour every day, I'm not a very good person. I just, I just know that's what I have to do in order to, 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 to be less of a prick. That's a good, that's a good way to look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, I was—I had something on my mind. See, I had—I I, my mind just went sideways. Oh, that's all right. I, that happens all the time for me at this at this point in life. <laughs> Your senior moments. There you go. I know they're—they're they're coming, and it's oh, not—it's not senior graduating from college. It's, it's I, yeah, I, I, sadly not. The um, what? So you know, I—I I think I um, I think well, when Suicide Casanova came out, and before that, you know, I knew of you, and that, you know, I was excited about that. And then we finally met when you came on Drinks with Tony. When we, I think we were in the uh, cafe studio, 
um, in San Francisco on uh, and, uh, was that and that was about ten years ago, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. I. I it's funny because I. You just remember snippets of things, right? I remember yeah, yeah, yeah. you sitting in the seat. Yeah. Uh, and you were to my right. <laughs> yes, I remember. I remember that now. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. That was like in the Mission District or something like that, or yeah, it was in the Mission District, and it, the radio station was set up along with a cafe and a big glass, so people can watch right. the radio, yeah. watch what's going on on the radio show. That's that can, great. That that That's, was so much fun. We used to have one down actually a few blocks down here. Uh, it was kind of a uh, same thing, kind of a cafe and a little radio thing. And I remember going by there once as. Uh, it was before she became famous. But I remember Amy Winehouse was leaving that thing, and wow. I, I kind of froze because I said, "Wow, this woman looks really interesting." I mean, she was always very, you know, kind of painterly and stuff. She looked, she looked like a tattoo, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I vividly remembered seeing her at that point, and then our path literally crossed. That was it. Wow. So, there it was. Yeah. I know. I wish I. I wish I was. Um... I heard of Amy Winehouse and then it wasn't until she died that it really tapped into her music. And then I was like, yeah. Oh, I missed out. That was my fault. <laughs> well, the, you shouldn't look at it that way. You know, you have to, it, I, I, you know, but I mean, her music will live forever, I guess. Yeah. But I, I, I'm just amazed by because she was in that, there was that radio thing in the window and she was leaving the East village radio uh, uh, station, whatever they called it. But you could see it on first Avenue as you'd be walking out. Anyway, that's the only reason I brought it up. But yeah, yeah, and it's, and I and I mean I've just I've just been a fan of radio since I was a little kid. I used to take radios apart and my, to my parents' horror, I you know I'd just be ripping the trying to figure out the uh, the little boards in there and put the circuits. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my God, good for you. I, I so radios like always been a passion, and to have like those radio stations where you can see. But what's ha what the, you could see the magic behind the mic and what's going on and how they're queuing up the next record. It just it always fascinates me. And it still fascinates me to this day. If there was a radio station that had a glass like that, I would have my hands up to the pain and just looking in like a kid, you know. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's one of the things like, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid technology is kind of, I mean, specifically the Internet might be kind of driving it away just because... Uh, you know, now everyone can be a disc jockey, and it's all well. It's all basically free, and it's like you know, you don't have to go through the commercials and Pandora and stuff like that. It's like you know, but anyway. But it was such a cool way to kind of socialize and you know, the common audience thing and stuff. That's kind of going away. Yeah, and when I was and when I was doing college radio, you know, um, I it we were curating our you know four hour shifts. It it, it was very. Um, you know, there was a passion to how, what am I going to, what am I playing? How am I going to get into this and out of this? You know, you, to, um, to I, that curation, I think is kind of gone. It's yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was such a, it really was such a great uh, reading ground for, for culture, for, uh, you know, for politics anyway. But I also, but I also do love the technology of podcast and yeah, everyone's got a podcast, but there are some cream that rises to the top and, it's. I, I think it's fun to have the just absolute free for all, and let's see what happens and what gets. Absolutely, yeah, no, totally. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, what are you, what are you working on uh, now? Are, are you? Uh, do you have something in progress? Well, my rent bill. <laughs> 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 I, I, I'm 
come up with this part of the rent, I have to make it to this part of the rent. But you yeah. know, working hard at this part of the rent, I just have to get to this part. You know, in, in uh, mid-August, uh, our governor Cuomo is like, reopening the tenant, landlord-tenant court. So they're anticipating this tidal wave of eviction for all these poor people that haven't worked these these months. Uh, so it's uh, it's a little, you know, there's been also this big rent protest hoping to get some kind of government relief from all this and that has not come in that has not come through and probably won't but um so anyway it's become it's uh instead of writing politics i'm living it so you know the um so please tell me that your apartment you got in the 1980s and you're paying 175 bucks a month for it because you're well, i'm stable there's rent controlled where you pay 175 and there's rent stabilization I, i'm stabilized which is great so i mean I, I'll, I'll make I'll, I'll, I'll summit that mountain of debt, but uh, a, a lot of people haven't. And like, uh, there's been a, a, a huge amount of um, just evacuation from the city. People are just bailing. They, they can't afford it and you can't blame them. And it's just, um, you know, there's no money coming in and these, these debts are mounting. And businesses as well, small businesses and restaurants, retail, are all taking major hits. I, I keep wondering how this city is going to look in a year or two or three, you know, after this pandemic, you know, I mean, hopefully it'll bounce right back, but I see a lot of people leaving, you know, yeah, or, or it may, yeah, I know there's the, we're in such a flux um, culturally, commercially, everything, you know, office oh, spaces are going up like the, you know, office spaces all over Los Angeles are available. And I, I, I hope as we get towards, you know, an, an ending of the pandemic or a stemming off that yeah. all of a sudden, maybe these places uh, become affordable to yeah. new people to come in and establish new small businesses and new new culture where where maybe maybe this is a nice reset on getting yeah. the, the the retail condos out of the way and yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's a good i mean hopefully yeah what you just said is dead on there's this tremendous amount of of high rent development going on all over the city i mean we have skyscrapers in downtown queens downtown brooklyn around the Hudson, the, the new Hong Kong, as they call it, Hong Kong on the Hudson. Uh, and it's, they're all empty. And it's like the idea that these places are going to, I mean, even if the economy was going at its current rate, at its prior rate before the pandemic, it was still going to be a while to fill them. Uh, you know, I mean, somebody must be taking a, a monster hit. And, and the thing is that those places are designed, most of them are designed for high for retail and for luxury uh, tenants. So you really, it's gonna be hard to convert them as we did like a lot of the old warehouses and stuff into like, you know, uh, you know, alternative affordable, you know, housing for artists and so forth. It's, they're just so designed for uh, high tech businesses and stuff. And it's gonna be interesting to see, it's gonna be interesting to see how that, how that plays out, you know, I have no clue. Yeah. So it's all about, yeah, it's, it's just, it's crazy to be under, you know, especially when, when I'm doing my best work as a writer, when I don't have my bills hanging right over my head and I'm, and yeah. you know, this, that when, when there's a cushion, then it's just like that worry goes away and my worry is on the project. And it's, uh, they're, they're, I, remember, I remember reading, I guess the, uh, the, you know, there's a writer, William Barrett, who wrote Irrational Man, which was like a big existential, you know, intro back in the, I guess, the late 50s, early 60s. And uh, I remember reading his memoir 
And he was, somebody asked him why he chose to become a writer. And he said, well, when I was growing up in the 1930s during the Depression, he said, I figured no one's making money anyway. I might as well be poor as a writer you know, rather than be poor as a businessman. So, I mean, maybe this will bring on an, a whole new generation of artists who are figuring, like, if I'm going to be broke, I might as well have something to show for it you know, rather than just uh, nothing. So, you know, maybe this will start some people in that direction. I, I think it is because I, I teach at UCLA Extension and our, um, our enrollments have been kind of low for a while. All of a sudden, my classes are full. There's waiting. Wow. And I'm like, huh, all right. This, we might be going somewhere. That's but, amazing. Yeah, the pot, the pot, I'm telling you, I'm a pessimist. I don't know where this optimism is coming from in a pandemic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, some part of our economy or our, our culture goes down, another part goes up somewhere. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, those that kind of endure it, those are because, you know, more than anything else, being an artist or a writer is really about persevering, you know, because it's, you can drop out for a million good reasons at any given moment and not look back, you know, as sometimes I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> more uh, and more as I get older, but I'm already too, I'm too deep into it to kind of, you know, the, the quicksand is over here right now, the, the writerly quicksand, so it's too late to pull myself out. So anyway. <laughs> Art, anyway. thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. And, and hopefully in 25 years when I have my next monster book, we'll be back here and, going through this again and, and i hope it's twice the size <laughs> and maybe maybe at that point instead of a pandemic it might be a volcano or a tidal wave you know and we could you know something a whole new crisis that we didn't see coming or maybe a meteor will hit who knows you know so until then take care man Arthur Narcissian on Drinks with Tony. Check out his latest release, The Five Books of Robert Moses. Remember to join his virtual event on July 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern with Bob Odenkirk of Mr. Show and Better Call Saul. Go to akashicbooks.com for more information. Also, join me as I teach my eight-week online writing course for screenwriting. Go to writingworkshops.com for more info on that. Hey, I'll see you next week. My guest will be Miriam Feldman. Have a great weekend.